You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. Excited to jump in today, and um, I'm gonna say if you're if you're a mom, Happy Mother's Day! Thanks for being a mom and all the good stuff that you do for your kids. Um, I know uh, I've learned that uh, in a new kind of way, uh, watching Lauren uh, hang out with this little increasingly wild child called Lydia, and uh, you know, and I know uh, there's also some of us who maybe have things that come up when we talk about moms, and uh, so if that's you, if you have stuff associated with your own mom, uh, you know, uh, maybe those are beautiful things, and maybe those are challenging things. For most of us, it's probably a mix, right? And so, um, you know, I, uh, I think God can handle all of it. Um, and so um, this morning, I'm just very thankful for life, thankful for nurturing, thankful for uh, fresh possibilities uh, that moms bring into the world, and thankful for that one mom that brought that one guy into the world that we talk about every week, right? Yeah. Thank you, Mary. Right on. Um, uh, this morning, I'm, I'm pretty excited to talk more about the kingdom of God. We've been talking about uh, as it is in heaven, and the idea of this series has been mostly to talk about like what it might look like to live as a participant in that kingdom. Uh, we, we use this language, right? We could have a whole series on like theories, what is the kingdom? How does it work in the world? Like, what does it mean? You know, is it a future thing? Is it a present thing? Is it a both and thing? Um, the answer, by the way, is both and. Um, but, you know, the, the questions we're wrestling with is more about, like, what's it look like to live in that kingdom? What does the New Testament actually teach us about life with Jesus in the space? And now, we've talked about how kingdom's weird, right? How many of you have um, ever been to a place where you've knelt to a king? Yeah, so no, none of you, none of you, right? Um, how many of you would ever kneel if the president came in town? Yeah, none of you, yeah, yeah, right? The, it's just weird. It's just kind of like imagery doesn't quite work, right? And some of you, because you're shady or whatever, watch Game of Thrones, and that's like your only referent, you know? <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're like, oh, kingdoms are weird. Those are bad. Like, it's all mean, you know? Or, or, or maybe um, if you're more like me, you watch Monty Python, and that's your kingdom referent, right? The Holy Grail. So like, like we, have, we have these weird sort of ideas about kingdoms, and they're really weird, you know? Uh, this series has been about saying, okay, so kingdom is a metaphor for the space where God's will happens. Kingdom is a metaphor for the space where God's reality is fully clear and obvious. Kingdom is a metaphor for the experience of community with a God who says, you have value. And if we can, if we can start there, uh, then kingdom starts to make sense a little bit. And so what I want to do today is I want to continue some of the conversations we've been having. And um, I want to jump right into a big idea. And then we're going to get a little weird like we do. It'll be fun. I can't wait. We're going to get so weird today. Oh, yeah. You're going to love it. Okay. Uh, and if you don't, then maybe you're... No, I'm just kidding. Um, okay. So this is the idea. As someone experiences Jesus' kingdom, 
their life becomes increasingly marked by Jesus-centered virtues. So what we are not saying when we talk about the kingdom as a personal experience is, A, that it doesn't affect other people around you or involve a community, and B, we're not saying that it has nothing to do with, like, the way you do good things in the world, right? So we're not separating kingdom into some sort of like spiritual piety where I feel really good because I prayed today and I'm all lit up inside so I can have a happy day. Although I I want that for everyone in this room, right? And we're not just saying, you know, the kingdom is like every cause that looks counter to the way of Jesus we're going to fight for and we're going to jump into. Like, like I, I think those causes are very important, and I think we do need to lean into those causes. But that's not the kingdom by itself. We've, we've kind of tried to say the kingdom is this space where a lot of that comes together around the person of Jesus. And in, in today's conversation, what, what I want to invite us to think about is that it's Jesus who actually enables us as followers of Jesus to increase our capacity for virtue. Now, virtue is a word that we need to unpack. And I'm going to give you a simple definition, and then I'm going to give you a Roman definition. And that's where we're going to get weird. So the simple definition is this. It's how the inward shapes your outwardness, right? It's your inwardness shaping your outwardness. Virtue is the character that is being developed within you that basically creates your default response to real-world situations. Great example, um, you know, the uh, airplane pilot who is flying a plane, and all of the sudden, instruments are breaking, something's going wrong. That pilot, in that moment, has trained her entire life to crash land appropriately. Thank you, Lost. Yeah, Lost, Lost is not the best example of this. Um, especially, never mind. Um, I'm not going to, you know, we're just talking about how does Lost end again? Like, we're just having this conversation, but I'm not going to ruin it for the two of you who need to Netflix it. Um, but um, I was one of those two last year, so I'm just being honest. Right? Like, I'd never even watched it. I, I watched the first episode, actually, and I was like, dude, Lost is so good. And I was like, but I don't have time, and then I never watched it again. So, um, so, so lust isn't the best example of this, but like, like remember that pilot who crash landed, and is it the Hudson River? Do you remember this? Yeah, that, that, I think guy probably, if I remember right, he, uh, he, he's like having a massive moment of panic, right? Because the plane is going down. And so what do, uh, what is the solution in that moment? Well, his automatic response is obviously kicked in and he landed in the water. And I have no doubt in my mind that that was just like, of course, this is the best course of action. And it was probably that quick that he thought of it. Some of you, actually, I'm thinking of one of you right now. I'm not going to point, but I will eventually. Is a surgeon. Um, and, and I can imagine in surgery, you don't sit there and go, what am I going to do here? I mean, sometimes there might be some deliberation, but like if it's like ER surgery, we've got, there's blood, you know, you just tie up the blood, right? Simply, right? And then you figure it out. Like there's instinct involved. If you're a nurse, you have that. By the way, why would you want to have a profession? Nurses, doctors in here, like blood, really? Like, come on, come on, come on. Oh, oh. 
Anyone else just kind of stomach, just doing things? Yeah, yeah, I don't know, I don't know. But some people among us, so we love them, and we're thankful for them. So, so the automatic nature of how we respond often reveals the character that we have developed around specific virtues, right? So an easy example around here is always we can talk all day long about wanting to be nonviolent towards enemies. But what really puts to the test, if that's your posture in the world, is when someone is aggressive towards you, what is your response to that situation? You see what I'm saying? And I'm not talking about getting punched in the face, although that could happen. And how would you, you know? Left hook, bro. That's how I respond, right? Maybe, maybe. But, but my, point, my point is like, like your, your virtue capacity for peace is tested in moments where non-peace confronts you, right? And in those moments, you, you can learn maybe where the shadows of your struggle with peace are. Maybe you learn, wow, I'm more peaceful than I knew I was. And so it's these automatic internal responses. By the way, Jesus throughout his ministry teaches this way. He's often saying like, you know, you want to like talk about adultery, but there's something going wrong inside when you look at someone with lust, right? Jesus points to the inward and says, it's the inward that matters because the inward reveals the kinds of things you're going to have a propensity to do if given the opportunity to do them, right? And so, again, these are the kinds of things we talk about when we talk about virtue. Now, Roman virtue kind of has the same mentality, except in the first century, Roman people weren't very nice. Can I be real a little bit? Um, I, there's so many people that are just like, oh, the Roman Empire was so cool. Yeah, yeah, it kind of was. Um, but Roman virtue reveals something about the heart of Roman values. Roman virtue, virtue is a word, um, virtus is how you say that in Latin. And from virtus, you get the word vir, which looks like V-I-R, um, by the way, that's pretty cool, right? V is W in Latin. So now when you see a Latin inscription and you want to read it like English, just remember V is W until the church takes it over and decides that's too much complication. And then it becomes V. Okay, so um, we're is man. We're tus is virtue. Can you already start seeing some connections of where I'm going here? Yeah? Yeah? And so in the ancient world, men and their capacity to be helpful and strong in Roman society was measured by the virtue that they possessed and presented to the world. They wanted to be virtuous like the heroes of old. You know, all of these great heroes that conquered stuff and had gods for moms and all this, you know, all these weird stories. That's what it was all about. Virtue was about being manly. And the way that you measured manliness, there were words that went with this, um, words that had to do with being firm or hard, right? We know where that goes. Yeah, it's just 
how they talk about it. I'm not even like trying to get weird. I'm just, I told you, weird, right? And, and, and so men were capable of being firm. Women were capable of not being firm. Now, this sexualized metaphor actually becomes a moral metaphor. To be morally soft is to be weak, is to um, lack self-control. To be morally strong is to have self-control, to have self-mastery is actually the way they would think of it. That they could own their space. They weren't running after whatever. They made logical, good decisions. But women never could do that in the ancient world according to men, according to Roman men. Women were too, have you ever heard this? How many of you heard this? Women are too emotional. Anyone heard that before? And you just want to kick someone? Yeah, yeah. Remember the peace virtue, peace, peace. Um, yeah, and so like in the ancient world, it wasn't like a thing. Women could only become virtuous if they acted like men. So when a Woman looked more and more manly. She was virtuous, but that kind of confused the men a little bit, as you can imagine, in the ancient world. And so this is the world that the early Christians exist in. Self-mastery is the goal. Only men can really do it. Slaves, children, and women are morally soft and cannot achieve this end. There's a guy named Cicero in the century of Augustus, kind of leading up to Augustus, uh, becoming emperor. Cicero's a politician, a philosopher, and this is what he says about the issue. He says, thus, everything comes down to this, that you rule yourself, right? So self-mastery, you own your own space, you own your own emotion, but we must see to the same thing, especially in pain, not to do anything in a base, timid, ignoble, slave-like, or womanish way. <laughs> Pretty weird, right? Some of you are like, have you seen the stats on women not getting paid enough? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It still exists, right? Patriarchy is still something that we deal with, and we inherit a lot of that from Rome. That's part of the heritage of a good Roman Western worldview. So with that vision of virtue, Jesus enters the scene, and he says, love people who persecute you, right? That sounds pretty soft to me. Oh, yeah. Weird, right? The early church comes along and says, you don't have to be a man to have virtue. I'm going to show you some of this, right? So, so Paul in Galatians chapter 3, this is what he says. It's a famous verse. It's a really important verse. If you don't know this verse, you should know this verse, right? Especially verse 28. But it says this in uh, 326 28. It says, You are all God's children through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, 
There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Jesus or in Christ Jesus. So let's think about this a little bit. That's the wrong side. Um, Let's think about this. Cicero has just said, women, slaves, they act this way. They're in a separate category. Men act this way. They're in a man category, right? And Paul comes around, speaks into that world and says, these distinctions are ridiculous. These distinctions are utterly ridiculous. And that's one of the coolest things about the Christian message. Distinctions are ridiculous. But we do it all the time. We do it in our own weird ways. Right? Like, like you and I, we, we judge, we label, we say, this is a good Christian, this is not so good. And yet, the goal of the game is like, there are no distinctions in Jesus. And we've spent the last 2,000 or so odd years trying to like navigate what it means to be a people with no distinctions by making distinctions. Going to war, deciding our version of Christianity is better than their version of Christianity. Eventually, we have an Eastern church and a Western church. Actually, Western church and East, right? Am I directionally challenged, Kurt? Yes. And, and we have, out of that, we have Reformation, and then we have Counter-Reformation, and we have all these movements. We're one of those movements, you know? And throughout church history, we've been trying to find how we can have a corner on the distinction market. But in the way of Jesus, these distinctions disappear. Roman distinctions don't exist in Christ. Virtue is for all. That is powerful in and of itself. Can you imagine Paul or one of the other apostles coming to your town and saying, hey, there's another king in town. His name is Jesus. And by the way, when you are in Jesus, none of these distinctions that you have in your household count anymore. We have an example of this in the New Testament, actually, a very clear example of this. It's a letter uh, to Philemon, right? Paul writes a letter to Philemon, a slaveholder slash master of the household, right? And he sends with uh, this letter a slave named Onesimus and says, I want you to receive Onesimus back to you, not as a slave, but as a dear brother. Why does he say that? Well, in Jesus, distinctions don't exist. It's a hard one for us to hang on to, though, because distinctions create stability for some of us. Distinctions create the sense of, I have power, I can have control, I can have everything worked out. But in Jesus, all can be virtuous because distinctions are mere 
idols. So if that's the case, what does this look like in practice? That's where I want to go for the next like few minutes is I, I want us to think now, okay, so this is a radical teaching in the first century. Like it's not just some like nice thing that the Bible says, but we're stepping into something on first century soil that was so counterintuitive and so revolutionary, we're still talking about it today. I want to share a verse that might have been a memory verse when you were in Bible school or whatever, if some of you grew up in that. And it was a nice verse back then, but I want you to hear it now with that entire backstory firmly in place. You ready? Here we go. Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against things like this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the self with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let's follow the Spirit. So Paul, you're, you're saying like, us regular folks can be virtuous and we don't have to put up this like fake front. No, in fact, virtue is kindness. Like, how are you developing more kindness in your life? How are you developing more peace in your life? How are you developing more joy? Oh. Oh. Okay. I think this flat sort of non-distinctive reality could be pulled off if this is what virtue looks like. That's hard. This isn't easy stuff because the verse says, look, like, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the self with its passions and desire. So so part of this is executing the part of you that resists transformation. So so it's not just like, here, guess what? It's so easy. It kind of in one way is. It's a gift. But in another way, Paul says, look, these things are going to be, it it requires that the things that drive you right now will no longer drive you in Jesus. The distinctions, the longings, the drives. Now there's some stuff in there that's good. Like insofar that those longings and drives are loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle and self-controlled, right? Like, like those, some of those things within you, we'd call that part of your own God-given, God-barrenness, right? Like, like your ability to bear the image of God, right? That's good stuff. Call it out. It, it can be real. But there's part of it that has to be painful, Part of it, it's, um, I, I grew up in the Central Valley of California. Good old Bible Belt of California. No one knows about that, right? And then in this Bible Belt, there are trees, so many trees, so many peaches, plums, nectarines, and oranges. They're just everywhere. And grapevines. You ever heard of the California raisins? 
that had sung, I heard it through the grapevine. Well, I don't think they actually sang it, but they had a cartoon that sang it, right? Um, yeah, and, 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 and there's trees all over the place. And what I know is that there's a lot of pruning that has to happen to make this work. There's a lot of, well, if you're non-organic, there's a lot of spraying that has to happen to kind of purify the space through, through non-purification. Anyway, I don't know how that works. A lot of good organic farms now. And, and, and there's a lot of pruning. There's a lot of, like, uh, trees. Sometimes they graft them together to make kind of new sorts of varieties of these fruits. There's all kinds of really interesting things that have to happen. But if they just let those fields run wild, well, a couple of things. The Central Valley is actually a desert, so they would never be irrigated. They'd never have water because it's all based on irrigation. So they need water. Uh, if they just let it run wild, the place would be desert in, I don't know, a couple of years. And so there's an intentionality to farming, especially in a space that isn't natural habitat for such production. Got to get the water there. You've got to prune stuff. You've got to plant stuff. You've got to actually rip out old trees and put new trees in every so often because eventually those old trees start to die out. And so what, what I, I think we, we kind of just got to understand is like when it comes to bearing the fruit of Jesus in our lives, it's not something that happens automatically. Virtue, the thing that you hold as real within you, your automatic responses show those things. So that is, is the sense we were talking about earlier where automatic sorts of reactions are important. But your responses that you want to be automatic will not be automatic, at least not in the way you hope they will be, if you don't work the field. And so I want to really wrestle with this. Like, how do we do it? Well, I, I think the passage gives us a lot of hope. The Spirit of Jesus enables us to grow the virtues, grow in the virtues of Jesus, right? So there's something about following the Spirit of Jesus that invites us into a space where we can actually be transformed, where life can be different, where we can live in contrast to the kinds of virtues and values around us. I mean, what kind of virtues and values do you notice every single day? Anyone want to just throw some out there? Like, what are some, I'm going to, I know, I'm going to ask you to say stuff. Come on now. What are some values and virtues that you think of? Like, when you think of, like, just contemporary 21st century values, like, what is one value or virtue that comes to your mind immediately? Go for it. Freedom? Oh, yeah. Freedom's a good one. It's an interesting kind of freedom. What else? Confidence. You have to be bold. You have to put forward the best version of yourself, right? And why do we have to be confident and put the best version of ourselves forward? Come on now. Often. The next promotion, the next social invitation, the next opportunity, the next interview for your kid to get into the school that you want the kid to get into. Yeah, it's a good one. What else? Perseverance as a cultural value. In what way? Yeah. Yeah. And, do, I, you know, and, and it's interesting because I think, I think a lot of these have pieces of stuff that we would affirm, right? 
But yeah, Jesus is into perseverance. Uh, perseverance all the way through an execution. Pretty, pretty cool. <laughs> right? I'm sorry. So, so sarcastic. Why? That's, that's, that's where Jesus is like saying, you're automatic sarcasm, dude. That's not good. Right? Like, I'm just a walking example of I got work to do. Yeah. And, and, and these values, like, like if we were to think of freedom and confidence and perseverance, we would say on the surface, these things could be really good, but freedom at the cost of what? Boldness at the cost of who? Perseverance at the neglect of what or who? Right? And, and Jesus shows us that we, we don't have to settle for half versions of these things, right? I'm going to put them all up here so we have a, a bit of a grid. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It kind of looks like a rocket ship. I'm not going to lie. Um, it's pretty sweet. Or a baby bottle for you moms. Yeah. Or a Christmas tree because we all want Christmas in May. Um, and June, and July, and August, and September, anyway. But as, as, we, as we look at these things, and we, we think about them through the grid of Jesus, like, like maybe one of the questions we want to ask ourselves is, when we look at the life and teachings of Jesus, how do we see Jesus embody these? And how are they a contrast to the way we see them embodied in our world? Like, how does Jesus embody love differently than the kind of love we're told is good in our world? How does Jesus embody a different kind of joy? Peace. I mean, in the Roman world, they were all about peace, by the way. You know this, right? Peace is good. Pax Romana. Let's go make peace happen by killing people. That's peace. Yeah. And Jesus' way of peace is like, no, yeah, we, we're shutting that down. We're shutting down the whole fighting thing. Patience. How did Jesus demonstrate patience? You ever met Peter? Met him in the book, at least. Love to meet him in person, but that'd be weird, right? Be the apocalypse zombie guy, it'd be weird. Um, or resurrection, that'd be neat. But that, anyway, I don't know. Why did I go to... Here's a problem with me, apparently. I'm more hopeful in a zombie apocalypse than I am an actual resurrection of the dead. Um, <laughs> very bizarre, Kurt. Okay. Ah. Uh, by the way, no quoting that out of context. I know some of you are already ready. I remember that old hashtag. Okay. Um, <laughs> But do you, do, you, do you get what I'm saying, right? Like, like, we look at these virtues, we look at these things, and we, and we have to ask ourselves, like, how does Jesus show us what they actually are there for? How does Jesus show us how they can actually shape our lives? And what keeps us from the vision that Jesus has for us? I'm going to give you two thoughts about what I think keeps us held back as we move towards our close today. The first one is this. I think our minds keep us from fruit. I think it's our minds sometimes. You ever have thoughts that are just like overwhelming? You ever thoughts that lead you to anxious moments in your day? Thoughts that are like, if I don't get this done and that done and this done, 
I might as well not even try to live anymore. You know what I mean? Like, like I might as well just like, I'm just going to sit and be a couch potato for the rest of my life because if I don't accomplish this, I'm pretty much worthless. Yeah. I feel that way all the time. Like, like if I don't get all of these things done that I've decided were very important to my world, if I don't get all those things done, I might as well just stop. Stop trying. Oh, yeah. How else does your mind hold you back, right? Like maybe, maybe uh, situations where fear dominates your imagination. And it can be very subtle moments of fear to like just full on, like I'm just, I live afraid more often than I live without fear in my life. See, uh, and, and, and so much of our struggle is with the way that our brain operates. And part of being a follower of Jesus, part of coming to church and actually going through these, these prayers and these songs and scripture together is actually a, an act of rewiring the brain to have more hope in it, to have more love, to have more peace, to have more like fearlessness. The mind can keep us from so much. And so one of the things that my journey has included is having to like crucify, so to speak, those desires, those things that my mind tells me are important that keep me from resting in the beautiful goodness of Jesus' virtue. Uh, It's sometimes meant very hard conversations with trusted people. Sometimes it's meant uh, therapy. A lot of times, actually, it's meant therapy, you know? Spiritual direction or, you know, there's a lot of things for me that it's like, why is my brain telling me this? But beyond my brain, like the part of me that knows beyond the thought knows that it's a lie. Well, part of the journey I know is learning what it takes to reprogram those default ways of thinking about our own self-image, about our own day, about our own sort of value in the world. This one's inspired, actually, um, a few of us were on retreat, and um, Ben Adams was uh, leading a, a retreat. This is like a training ground for leaders, and, and uh, he talked about the way that sometimes our bodies kind of hold us back from experiencing the fullness of the kingdom. Not because our bodies in and of themselves are bad. The actual truth is that God made you with a body on purpose. But have you ever wondered why over and over again, the Bible says things like the flesh is bad? You know what I mean? So live by the spirit. Flesh bad, spirit good. I know when I was a kid and I was taught about that, I was always under the impression that it meant that my, my physical self was full of sin and it was messed up and I couldn't do anything to get away from it except die and go to heaven so I could be fully spirit. The Bible isn't really like into that because otherwise Jesus would have walked out of a tomb as a spirit, right? But Jesus walks out of the tomb with a body that, you know, he eats with people, and it doesn't fall out like a Casper movie. You know what I mean? Like, like, like he eats with people, and it's going through the digestive tract of Jesus where he only has good bacteria in his gut because he's been resurrected, of course. But like, like he is 
flesh. Right? So, so what do we do with that? Like, and, and what I've, I've been learning about just wrestling with that idea is like, but I think the Bible understands, I think the New Testament authors understand something about what it means to be human in a world that has been dominated by evil. That it's not the body itself that is bad, but it's what the body has been wired to do and be that can be bad. The body has natural instincts. Try and tell yourself that our instincts, by the way, survival of the fittest. Let's just think about one sort of animal instinct that's been kind of bred in us as we've been evolving, blah, 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 right? Yes, God created us back in the day. Don't, don't, yeah, hopefully you're all cool with that. If you're not, there's a series. But we are wired for competition, We are wired to look around us and say, how can I be the strongest so that my people don't die? Even at the expense of their people. And Jesus comes along and says, that instinct of the flesh, that part of you, that drive to compete, that drive to kill, that drive to hurt other people, that is no longer valuable in my kingdom. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. It is bizarre if we want to extend this metaphor all the way, and I know this is kind of silly and it's not scientific of me, but if we want to just play with it for a minute, following Jesus involves de-evolutionizing your animal instinct to kill, to survive. Think about that. You are wired to do something that Jesus says you no longer have to participate in. But, but do you see, like, like your body tells you things every day. Your body tells you you're too tired. Your body tells you you're not good enough. Your body tells you you can't do it. And what do we have in Jesus? In Jesus, we have the possibility. In Jesus, we have the possibility to resist those urges so that we can bear peace, so that we can bear kindness, so that we can bear goodness, so that we can look at our lives and say, My body is not my master. In fact, Paul will say things like, I beat the living poo out of my body. I make it my slave so that I can preach the gospel, so that I can lean into life, so that I can lean into love. And so sometimes our minds and sometimes our bodies and sometimes our sound systems need to be resisted. So here's two thoughts. Virtue requires training through God-awareness and self-awareness. If you want a life that looks more and more like the values and vision of the Sermon on the Mount, practice the kind of life you want to experience. Experience a God who is with you. Experience a self who says, oh, wait, my body is telling me I want this. And I know this isn't what I deep down, like, like if I were to go all the way into my heart and, and really go into where the desires of my heart are, I know what my body is saying is a lie. Okay, step one. You just recognize that you don't need another candy bar, Kurt. Oh, I'm sorry. Man, I preach to myself a lot. Your body will lie to you. Your mind will lie to you. 
and learning to recognize the lies is an invitation into further God awareness and further self-awareness. And so as we kind of wrap up this conversation, I I, want to just look at one question. I want to leave us with this question. I want us to maybe even take some time in our silent moment here together to just ponder this question. What fruits, which fruits or virtues do you desire to grow in with Jesus? Like where, where would your life look different if your capacity to experience one of these virtues was expanded with Jesus. You want to talk about where the kingdom of God hits your life, like where the rubber meets the road? Talk about these virtues. Talk about the way in which you're being shaped by God. The more that we're shaped by this God, the more that we're going to exude the life that God really wants for us. A more human, fulfilling, beautiful, spirit-empowered existence in the world.